to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Happy New Year, everyone. Congratulations to everyone listening. You managed to make it into 2021. We are kicking off the year on a high note with regard to the COO Roundtable. We have two fantastic guests joining us today, and we've earmarked some great questions for this conversation. I think we'll bring a lot of value to our listeners today. Joining me, we have Lisa Cook, the newly appointed appointed COO at Pacific Portfolio Consulting in Seattle, and Erica Farber, partner at Ballantyne, headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, and they have a second office in Raleigh, North Carolina. Erica was worried she doesn't have the specific COO title, but you will soon learn that she is handling all of the job responsibilities of a traditional COO, and then some. She's also got the CCO title as well, so she's perfect for our discussion today. Uh, but before I put too much pressure on the two of you and really hype you up, <laughs> I will just say welcome, Lisa and Erica, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much thank for having us. Erica, I'm going to go to you first. Why don't you give us a, an overview of Valentine? Sure. We were founded this go-round in 2009. That being said, this is the third version of Valentine. So I've worked with, in many cases, the same individual since I don't know. It's probably been about 20 years. I refuse to say it's been any longer than that. And so we've had the experience of sort of growing in this industry together. Our current AUM, which we refer to as assets under advisement, is a little bit over $3 billion with 39 employees. Ideal client is such an interesting thing for us to talk about. I would say at present, we are running three sort of distinct business lines with unique ideal clients. So first and foremost, from a wealth management standpoint, traditional wealth clients who are looking for sort of a holistic financial planning, as well as investment assistance. We also have a focus on institutional clients that is specifically for what we call the GAA, the Global Asset Allocation Focus. And then we are in the midst of creating a multifamily office. So we have grown um, pretty much in every direction one can grow in the past 10 years. That is an increase in our staff and increases in our services provided. And I would say that our vision is to continue down those lines to, to really expand the services that we can offer across the board. That's fantastic. And Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about Pacific Portfolio Consulting? We were founded in 1992, and we currently have about $3.8 billion in AUM and 17 employees. So we kind of run lean and mean. And really, uh, around our ideal client, really how Pacific Portfolio thought about their business is, is it was building it around major life events for their clients. So really kind of that, think about that ideal client, you know, are those private business owners, entrepreneurs, and executives typically are what you see in, in our book of business. We have kind of kind of like um, what Eric was talking about, a few different channels. We have institutional, which is really 401k business. We have the wealth management side of our business where we actually have segmented offering where we can take the, the lower $500,000 children of our high net worth clients via robo offering. And then we have an investment only option for that 500 to 2 million. And then 2 million plus really is where you get the, the full, full deal of the investment, the financial planning and everything. And then we also have trust services offering as well. So 
we really can meet our clients' needs. You know, think about it when we're in there for a 401k on a small privately owned business, we're there to help them set up their 401k, get to know all the owners. And then as they go through their life events where maybe they're going to sell their business or start doing estate planning, we're really there to help kind of that natural fit on the wealth management side. Perfect. You both, you've got full service offerings. That, uh, that's great. So Erica, you've been at Ballantyne for 11 years. You've had a bunch of positions there. <laughs> uh, you even said that the firm itself is in its third iteration. Even today, as I mentioned, you're juggling a, a, a lot of roles. Prior to Ballantyne, you were at Wilmington Trust. Can you just give us a little bit of, of your background and how you've zigged and zagged to the role you hold today? I can. It's been a fascinating ride. Um, I did not have very much experience when I got into this industry. And so I was very open-minded to what my future could look like. I would say I started to gravitate towards operations um, pretty early on where I would make deals with my colleagues to say, if you will call this client and speak to them, then I will handle your ACAT for you. And that just continued to, I think, to expand. And then one day I had a conversation with my um, current boss and said, you know, I really enjoy this, this, and this. And she said, well, why don't you create a job that does that? And I was sort of shocked, but I did. And I created um, an operations manager role um, for myself. And that has expanded over time to be operations, um, now to be compliance, which I volunteered for, which you'll have to ask me questions later as to why I would have done something like that. (laughs) Also running our operating um, committee in the firm, technology committee, managing, I would say, more than 50% of the employees. And I just uh, got a seat at the management table. So how I got here Um, I think the best way to summarize that, I had people who helped me find and understand my options and um, just a great deal of mentoring from our senior leadership team. I love it. We um, we wrote an article not too long ago about how to get into RA ownership through the operations track. And one of the main things in talking to several people on this podcast, you have to be willing to raise your hand because <laughs> that's not the traditional track in our industry, right? It's always the advisors are the hold the leadership positions at, at RIA. So I love that, that you raised your hand and they said, go ahead and create the job. So that's fantastic. So Lisa, as we mentioned, you recently joined Pacific Portfolio uh, with a ton of industry experience. You were at Oppenheimer for seven years. You were at Freestone for six. That's another big name in the RA space. And then you got caught up in merger mania, <laughs> which a lot of us have done in, throughout our careers in this industry. So you were at you were at SNW Asset Management, which then sold to Oppenheimer, which then sold to Invesco. So you had a lot of logo changes on your business cards during that stretch. But if you could walk us through your background. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely right. The, the logos, I, I barely get my new business card printed in the last few years. And <laughs> I seemed like I'd have to get a new one. Really how I got into the industry is kind of silly, but I was a business uh, administrative marketing major up from Western Washington University. And I moved to the city and had no intent to be in finance, but it was during the dot-com time and I didn't really know what stock were. And so a lot of the firms were offering a low salary, base salary plus stock options. And I figured that wouldn't pay my rent. So I had to look at other options and I ended up working. My first job was at uh, Prudential Financial Services because they were paying 10000 more on the base than, than the dot-com. So 
that's how I got into the industry. And I never really left. It was uh, almost 25 years ago and started over on the BD side with Payne Weber after Prudential. Um, that was before UBS. I'm really dating myself now. That's before UBS bought them. Moved over to Oppenheimer Funds where I really worked with that group of advisors. And I was really on the more of the client service, senior client service associate. And then once we left the broker-dealer side, I left with that team and went over into the RA space, which was kind of a whole new world for me, coming from the BD where everything's, you know, a little bit more built out. You have the robust New York headquarters, operations teams, and the cage and all that stuff. At RA, it it was completely different. And I found that I really loved it. And that's really where I just kind of thrived. I'm I'm more entrepreneurial in nature. So much like what Erica said, I, I just kind of raised my hand at anything that needed to be done because in the RA world, you do, you know, just wear so many hats. And so I I did a lot of growth, I think, at at Freestone, just being able to take on so many different areas from operations to, to service to training to recruiting and all of that. And then I transitioned over to SNW Asset Management. After about six years at Freestone, wanted ownership, wanted to be a partner, and they were a great fixed income money manager, local RA shop that brought me on as partner. Shortly thereafter, Oppenheimer Funds, and by shortly, I mean a little over a year, Oppenheimer Funds came to us and if we wanted to be acquired or be part of their firm. And, and so we worked through that process and then I was there about just under two years, and then they sold the uh, Mass Mutual, their their parent company, sold to Invesco, and so I would have to go through another integration process. And through all of that, I picked up a lot of the COO because you are wearing so many hats, and again, it, that's really what a COO is in my mindset. And so, really, just picked up more and more from the operations to technology to day to day to HR to culture, especially going through those integrations. Yeah, you say wearing a lot of hats. I mean, I, I always joke and say the COO job description is do everything around here that's not being done today. That's pretty much the job description. <laughs> so yes, I love it. So we, I mentioned you just went through the interview process, Lisa, and having had many discussions, I'm sure, about how exactly you were going to be brought into the organization, what areas of the firm that you were going to impact. And Erica, you and I have had some really great conversations I know you're very well connected with a a lot of COOs across the industry and operations folks. You always have a fresh perspective on the impact COOs have at their firms. So I want to have a high level discussion with both of you today about the role of the COO and how RAs can leverage this position to its fullest extent. So with that backdrop, one of my favorite topics that we talk about on this podcast is culture. Obviously, culture is set at the very top of the organization. It starts with the owner or the owners. And then it trickles down from there. But in our industry, the owners of RIAs are most often advisors themselves, and they are most focused on clients and prospective clients. So the vast majority of the time, they are not in the office. They are out uh, in a <laughs> in a non-pandemic world. They are out of the office focused on building the business one client at a time. So that means that the employees that are in the office all day long with the COO, they're looking for a person to set the tone of the organization. So Lisa, in your new role, what do you anticipate your impact will be on the culture at Pacific Portfolio? Well, I, I hope a positive impact. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the goal. But really, this is a hard environment to come into a, a new, new firm and, and really impact the employees the way that I'm used to. So I've had to be a bit creative. I made sure I spoke with every employee on video meetings, you know, really paying attention to not only professionally what they do in their impact, but also trying to connect with their them personally. 
just to help build that rapport that then unfortunately I, I'm missing um, stepping into a new firm without that face-to-face engagement. I'm reminding them really that I'm here to support them, remove the obstacles in their way. Some people are unsure of what the COO role really does. So really to build in different performance reviews, performance systems that really highlight the firm goals, the team goals, and then also how each of their individual goals support their, their team and firm. At Pacific Portfolio, they really view the entire, all 17 employees as a team working for the clients. No one advisor owns that client in per se. It's really, we always talk about it as a team. So coming in, that was really my first priority was understanding the current culture, understanding where maybe I can help or if there was some ambiguity on on how your function impacts those team goals that you align to, and then also the firm goals was really important. So you said some of the employees are still trying to figure out what a COO does. Is it, are you the first COO at the firm? <laughs> Have they not had that specific role before? I'm the first COO at the firm. Wow. So first of so. the firm and you're do, trying to do this in a remote <laughs> environment. So you definitely have your your work cut out for you. <laughs> I, I do, but I can tell you it's been great. Like I say, you just got to be creative and always be learning. That's what I tell myself. Surely it tested me uh, at this job transition with the pandemic. That's great. So um, Erica, talk to us about the culture at Ballantyne and how you've impacted it at the firm. This question always makes me giggle because we've gone through several um, several stages with our culture. We had a um, culture vision statement for the firm, I would say, eight years ago, and it included things like, we like to have fun, or, and or, we believe in work-life balance. <laughs> and finally, um, really, our employees said, yeah, that's not actually our culture at all. And so the leadership team turned over the development of our cultural vision and, and cultural goals um, to the actual employees. And they worked with management to put together, I would say, the truth about Valentine in a very positive way. Because the fact is, we are hardcore. We go you know, full speed at all points in time. We value and promote excellence in everything that we do. And I would say that that change um, was the first step of establishing what I think is a very authentic culture. On the flip side of that, we have, and I'm a participant in this as well, really focused on behaviors. So not just what do you believe as an organization, but really how do you behave with your coworkers? And, you know, so as the person who's inside of, in the office, while many other people are out, I get the really good opportunity to, to probably help people get through um, some conflicts and to transition that from a stressful experience to a, a learning experience. I also have the benefit of having done almost every job here. And so I, I have a, an enormous respect for, and I'm informed um, of the different aspects of each role. I think that though that combination of things uh, really brings me to the level that I care about. I want to be a coach. You know, I don't necessarily want to just be a manager or to, you know, just be the COO or the CCO or any of those other titles. Um, ultimately, I feel my responsibility is to help people 
develop um, across whatever you know capacity that happens to be technologically speaking from a continued you know standpoint all of those things um, so in terms of driving culture yeah I do and I take great pride in that and I've learned more about myself throughout through that process than I have um, necessarily about other people. <laughs> I love that you say you want to be a coach. I think that was early in my COO life. I, I thought, oh, I'm the COO. My job's to do everything. And I didn't have, it took me a while to figure out that coach um, uh, aspect of it. So that's, that's fantastic. And then you, you mentioned how they turned over the, for, the formation of the culture to the employees. Another question I love to ask is, what have the owners of your businesses done to empower you as the true operators and leaders of the business. When, when David Cantor was on the podcast, we talked about the failure rate for COOs at RIAs is something like 50%, not because the COO can't do the job, but because the owners oftentimes don't empower the COO and the staff learns pretty quickly, they can go around that person, go right to the owner and get the answer that they're looking for. And then things break down very quickly from there. So um, Lisa, I know you're brand new, but how has the firm set you up for success in this new role as COO? When I was looking to make the transition, and it kind of goes back to the previous question too, culture is key, right? That's the most important as I get more advanced in my career, I want to be around people I like. So during the, the interview process, right out of the gate, I mean, and it was a nine, nine interview, I think it was in total. Um, that was one of the first things I started asking. Each of the executive leaders expressed the need and excitement to have this role. So I immediately could see they, they were all so humble and honest about what they really needed in Pacific Portfolio and what that I can bring that maybe they were lacking. Some of that was management, managing that day-to-day. Larry Hood, our CEO, he's the owner, he's the chairman of the board, he's a senior advisor who brings in that he needs that right hand. It's been super, super supportive, all, like I said, all through the interview process. And from day one, he was asking my opinion on items, pulling me into conversations, looking for advice and bouncing ideas off of me. And I tell you, and, and what, I, what I explained to them in the interview process as well is, is yes, you're bringing in somebody um, that hopefully can alleviate and take over some of the management items and the day-to-day stuff. But what I really need, you know, I can't do it by myself. It has to be supported by, you know, the executive leadership team. We have to come out with a strong message, support our employees and get their buy-in and, and get their trust as well. It's been a good experience so far. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> And then Erica, how have you avoided this scenario in your role at Ballantyne? Not sure if I've avoided it, but I've worked through it. <laughs> um, and for in a really good way. So when you talk about culture and behaviors and all of those things, you know, feedback is incredibly important to help someone um, grow and develop. And I um, now I report directly to the CEO. And we started, I would say, our relationship, but with some pretty rigorous honesty that was really, I think, delivered in the best possible way. He said, Erica, you do a lot of work around here. You don't get any credit for it. And the reason you don't get credit for it is that you don't talk about what you do. (laughs) So if you want to have fewer obstacles to moving things forward, it's time for you to be more communicative about how much you're handling and how you are handling it. 
Uh, he also let me know that I had some communication challenges that I needed to overcome to eliminate uh, those obstacles. If, and I'll share this with y'all. You can probably all you know, relate to it. I tend to say things once. And people can't possibly hear those things once. So now I've learned how to communicate often, even though it may appear redundant and can do so in various forms, you know, in a meeting, in an email, follow-up materials, all of those things. So I would say it really was a help me, help you conversation um, without that honesty from my CEO to tell me exactly what it is I needed to change to remove those obstacles, then I wouldn't be on the path to make that change. And now every day, I would say that um, I see massive amounts of improvement in that area. That's great. So if we, if we go through these questions chronologically, what we've just talked about, you've been empowered, you're helping shape the culture. And now the big question is, how do you affect change within your organizations? whether it's, it's, a, it's a new technology that's being introduced or it's a new workflow or a process. How do, you, how do you both get buy-in from the employees and get adoption for the new ways in which the firm needs to operate? And Eric, I'll, I'll go to you first on this one. So adoption has been a challenge for us. Um, training has been a challenge. Continuity of service when we experience turnover has been a challenge. And I started my um, planning or my approach by going back to my elementary education classes in college, where we focused on how people learn and how people change. And so I've really embedded that philosophy in everything that we are doing at this point. That includes things like not to roll out every feature of new technology at once, but instead to break it up into manageable bite-sized pieces, and that that is the best way to ensure adoption. Uh, We've also made some pretty substantial changes to our training platform, and that will continue to, to grow. So yes, I would say that has it been a challenge for us to manage those those changes, that adoption? Most certainly. What uh, the best thing I did though was to not try to recreate the wheel. It was to go back to educators and find out what it is that they do to handle these types of everyday scenarios. It was fascinating and um, information that's been incredibly valuable. I'm laughing, Erica, because as I said at the beginning of this, you were worried. I don't know if I'm the right person for this podcast. You, <laughs> you've given three fantastic answers in a row around communication and coaching and and elementary education. So you you are the perfect person for this podcast. I just want to point that out. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. So Lisa, it's, it's obviously way too early in your tenure at Pacific Portfolio to address this question in the past tense, but I'm sure you have a roadmap in front of you that has quite a bit of change coming for the organization. What are your plans to achieve adoption and keep everyone sane during that transition process? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, if you think about it, you know, we, we kind of laughed a little bit about my, the acquisition after acquisition. I got really, really good at change management because you're moving into different cultures, different systems. You're bringing your team, being rolled into, I think it was a 20-person team, into a 2,000-person team, and then into a 7,000-person mm-hmm. firm. So really being thoughtful, I learned probably the most about my employees 
about change and comfort zones and through both of those acquisitions. So what I think going into Pacific portfolio and, and really how I look at things and let's let's start with processes. So if there's a new process in need, you know, first it's always, you know, what's not working. And that's kind of what I did when I was going through the interview, when I was speaking with each of the employees about those obstacles. But really I take a look and I'm like, okay, I, I basically ask four questions and, and it's to the, the people that is going to impact the most and that are either whether it's a system or a process, it's the users, right? What is the issue? What if we did this or this? What would be ideal? And then what works and what works means what's, it, it may not be the full ideal, it may not be the Ferrari because our resources aren't, you know, we don't have quite that deep of pockets, but it might be the Honda for the process. And so I engage with the employees that really would be the heavy users of the new process or the new system and get them to start helping to build out new processes. And then I work with them. I'll get the, you know, help get the resources or have to be the naysayer at times. But that's really kind of my approach at how I look at things. Adoption rate, Erica, I'm with you. New technology is probably one of the hardest things to get high adoption rates on right now with our CRM. It's, it's really getting people to utilize it. There's so much there and you have to stage in and you're going to make changes and tweak things, you really have to stage it in so you, you don't uh, drive your employees crazy and make their job harder for the next few months while they learn the new systems and processes. And you, you mentioned knowing the comfort zones of each individual employee is so important. I, I see that all the time. Some employees can handle a lot of change and some, the smallest little thing will, will set them off. I don't, I can't use this new system. Well, what's wrong with the new system? Well, the, the clock used to be in the bottom left and now it's in the bottom right. And it's just, I, I can't use it. I'm not going to use it. <laughs> so, so exactly. understanding, yep. Yep. Understanding who can, who can handle change, how much change. I, I love that, that you brought that up, the comfort zones. That's, it's very important. So I have a, a big question for both of you. I had a, an interesting conversation with an advisor recently. Uh, he called me up. He says, okay, Mr. Sonnen, I've been told you're the COO whisperer in our industry. Uh, he said, so tell me, how should I be rating my COO? How do I know if, if he or she is doing a good job? And I immediately said, well, how much of your time, Mr. Advisor, how much of your time is freed up to focus on clients and prospects? And how often are you being pulled into the day-to-day -day minutia of running the business? And I said, if, if you aren't being forced to deal with HR-related issues or technology-related issues, then your COO is doing a great job. But if you feel you still don't have enough time dedicated to growing the business through client acquisition or referrals from your existing clients, then your COO needs to step up and, and take more off your plate. And, and I thought that was a pretty good answer, but he was quiet for a little bit. And then he said, that is ridiculous. <laughs> he says, I need concrete metrics by which to rate my COO. If I'm looking at an advisor, I know exactly what are the net new assets that this advisor brought in? What are the satisfaction scores that he or she has received from existing clients? I know exactly how that person's doing. So how do I rate my COO? So I obviously failed at answering his question. <laughs> so I'm going to turn it over to you two and see if you can come up with a, with a better way. Lisa, I'll go to you first. What are your thoughts on this? Being that you just joined the firm, how have you mapped out you know, what success will look like in your role? Well, first off, I, I honestly believe your answer uh, is pretty accurate for the COO role, but a COO plays a different part in almost every RA, we all probably do something a little bit different. We could be, you know, the 
the heir pair. We could be the the right hand. We could be the the coach for the CEO, a young CEO mm-hmm. type thing. So it's kind of hard to say what metric across the board you've used for for a COO, especially for that that quantitative piece. And it was kind of funny. I was having a conversation the other day with our CEO, and and he said, "You're the you're the only role that doesn't touch the client at all." And that is actually accurate in, in our firm right now, mm-hmm. but I'm alleviating a lot of that, the day-to-day stuff, the obstacle removers, problem solvers, that employee HR items, working on the culture, attracting new employees, alleviating headaches for the CEO. So how we've kind of determined a specific portfolio to, to rate us is I'm involved in a lot of the strategic initiatives, the marketing, the branding. We're trying to, you know, attract new advisors next year. So really it's going to be around some of those metrics and we haven't fully identified what they are, but it will be from the board perspective and from the business, are we attracting advisors and, and, and less of the, the new client, but is our branding and marketing plans working and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, that's great. So Erica, how how do you think a COO should be measured for success? I think ultimately my role is intended to increase profitability. <laughs> now, granted, um, not in the same manner as you know selling or you know garnering clients per se, but the more efficient I can make our uh, various business lines and operations, the more money we can all make. And that's a really great incentive uh, across the board. So, but how do you achieve that? Uh, It's taken me some time to recognize that you've got to be able to provide some factual analytics and data to be used to evaluate your progress. That is the Probably one of the largest reasons we have invested so much in our new CRM, it is not just to have a place, a hub for all client information, but it's also built to give us really key metrics in terms of efficiency, profitability. How are our new account paperwork times um, comparing to a month ago, a quarter ago, you know, two years ago? Having that data at your fingertips is really the only way that you can start to design what it is you think you should be held accountable for. Uh, so this will be a very exciting year for us, 2021. Anything could be better than 2020. And that is specifically to make sure we've got some data so that we can then hold ourselves accountable for achieving those results. Uh, And I'm also really excited about utilizing that data to perhaps, this is going to shock everyone, hire before you need to. Mm -hmm, (laughs) We don't have any way currently to assess how many clients can a team manage, you know, how much revenue can a team handle. And I think this year we realized that it's not nearly as cut and dry as we would like for it to be. It's not a dollar amount and it's not a client amount. Instead, it's a complexity. It's a factor of complexity. And also with our new CRM, we're going to start really monitoring client complexity, number of touch points, number of entities and new accounts, um, the things that really impact the the stability of the team to continue to provide really great service. So um, that's something that we can be measured by, which is how are you documenting 
and really designing the firm to have the information it needs to make better decisions across the board. It's great. I think you both hit on topics that it, it, it's really the, the whole reason I've started this this podcast was, you know, Lisa, you said, and, and you hear this at a lot of firms. Well, I don't know. I, I'm very confused by the COO role because you're not directly touching client relationships. So I don't understand the value. And then Erica, you brought up, which, you know, again, these terms aren't, you know, again, it's not just where's the next client coming from, but efficiency and profitability aren't always valued as, as highly as they should. It, it's just, you know, I, I can see where, where the new client came from, but the other stuff is a little bit nebulous. So um, you both hit on reasons why I started this podcast was I'm trying to bring these topics to the forefront and really shine the, a light on all the work that, that you are doing uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So both did fantastic with that answer, better than I did. <laughs> so that was great. Thank you. So lastly, I'll bring up 2020, even in the middle of a pandemic, set records yet again for M&A activity in our industry. I spoke with an investment banker just this morning, someone focused on the RI industry, and they said their firm completed more transactions this year than any other time in their 10 plus year history. And she said they have five more deals that are closing between now and January 31st of next year. So just the first month of the year. I don't know how much M&A either of your firms have done so far, but I'd love to get your thoughts on how best to position your firms for success in this M&A area. Lisa, I'll go to you first on this one. Sure. It is a, one of our 2021 to bring on a, an advisor with a book, so as well as 2022. And really how to position our firm is something that we work on and we are currently working on last year, you know, just going through rebranding and marketing, ensuring all our employees understand really what we want to do for our clients, what our expected service models are, ensuring you have scale and efficiencies, everything is running pretty tight ship without losing that boutique fill of an RAA. That's important. And this year, like I said, we, we really focused on our brand and our image and getting it out there so that people know who we are, what we do, and what we can do for our clients. And hopefully that'll set us up for success. You know, of course, you always got to look at your, your bottom lines and, and keep your budget tight. But yeah, that's really what we've done going into 2021. Perfect. And Erica, what are your thoughts around M&A readiness? We have certainly taken on advisors with um, a book uh, before, but I would say in the next year, we're going to be poised to expand that to perhaps take in another firm or to merge or meld with some similar firm who may not necessarily have had a transition plan and someone's ready to retire and doesn't necessarily have any plans for their clients. So, you know, this I could see that this is going to be a big opportunity for us this year. And it's ironic, Matt, that you started with culture uh, because it all comes down to that. First and foremost, we will make sure that anyone we add to our team or a firm that we hire or merge with is a cultural match <laughs> because otherwise there's no amount of money or new clients that can smooth over a bad cultural fit. <laughs> That's number one. And number two, I would say a huge part of what we're doing this year is you've got to have well-documented, easy-to-follow processes and procedures that can be applied across the firm and across locations. We're not there yet, but we are getting close. So my goal is really to start putting foam on the runway, understanding that the plans are definitely going to come soon. <laughs> 
That's great. I put a lot of pressure on the two of you at the top of this conversation, <laughs> uh, but both of you delivered above and beyond my high expectations. So thank you both for sharing your thoughts uh, today. This was fun and, and very insightful. Happy New Year to both of you. And thank you again for being here. It was our pleasure, I am sure. Um, and that I will add one thing. I'm just so glad that someone's asking these questions. So if, you know, if we're thrilled to participate, it's in part because I don't think we've um, have the forum, I think, to discuss these things as much in the, in the past. So bring it to the forefront. I love it. Awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. And, and thanks for having me. And, and Eric, I agree 100% having these types of forums to, to talk through the COO role. And it's been fun. Great. And for all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode. We will talk to everyone soon.